Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra 4, 6 through 24. And in the reign of Ashuarius, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, and Mithridath, and Tabiel, and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Reum the commander and Shimshai the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes the king as follows. Reum the commander, Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erek, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Reum and the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I made a decree and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter." Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Reum and Shimshai, the scribe, and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of King Darius, king of Persia. It's all right. She gets an excuse. That's some tough reading right there. <laughs> tough reading. And now I'm in trouble because she said it differently than I would say it. So I got to remember how she said all those names. Well, good morning and welcome again to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. If you are just joining us, we are working our way verse by verse through the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah 
were contemporaries who lived about 2,600 years ago. Both were called by God out of exile to return to the ruins of Jerusalem to rebuild. Ezra was called specifically to rebuild the temple and Nehemiah was called to rebuild the wall and the city. We have their work recorded for us in the books of scripture that bear their names. Now we are currently studying Ezra and that will take us a couple more months. Then we'll take some time off over the summer and return in the fall to study Nehemiah. Now Ezra and Nehemiah have a lot to teach us. They were both faithful men who were called to lead the people of God to renew a city in the midst of a lot of cultural and societal opposition. This week, we are going to finish studying chapter four. And just as a warning, it is a dark spot in this season of renewal. The people, by the end of the chapter, the people let their hands droop and their knees go weak. It's been one difficult task after another, and today we see them take a shot to the mouth and they begin to stagger. They wonder, can I go forward? Is it worth, the, is it, worth it? They've had just about all the conflict and opposition that they can stand. The story reminds us that God is writing a story that is much different than the one we would write for ourselves. The one that we would write for our children. Parents, let me ask you, if you were writing your kid's story, how many games would they lose? How many friends would betray them? How many teachers would hate them? Thankfully, we don't get to write our kids' stories. If we did, no one would read them. Who wants to read a story about a kid that everything came easy to them and they never experienced setback, right? That's not the stories we read. No. In one sense now, this story is a microcosm of the work that God has called all of us to. The work of rebuilding a worshiping community and a city for the glory of God. And if we are going to remain faithful to that task, that task that's in front of us, we have to be clear-headed about the adversaries and conflict that will necessarily come our way. Conflict is a necessity. It's coming our way. If it's not here already, it's coming our way. So we have to be aware of that fact and we have to prepare ourselves now for that fact. Let me pray for us and we can get into the text. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ability to read this story that happened 2,600 years ago because you raised up faithful men not only to do this, but then to re uh, record it and to write it down for our benefit. I pray, Father, that your word would speak to your people this morning, that it would come alive, that it would feel like today's news to them, that you, the sovereign God of the universe, would speak through your word ordinary means of grace. I pray that you would think through my mind and speak to my vocal cords. Father, I pray it every week, but I mean it. I pray that you would speak through me to your people and it'd be all of you and none of me. 
pray that you would encourage us. You would rebuke us. You would discipline us. You would restore us. You would do the work in us that needs to be done right now to send us out into this city for another six days until we can gather again to be faithful to your mission, to be faithful to our calling. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, let me catch us up really quick again. What's going on in Ezra? Well, the people of God had been carried off to Babylonian captivity and Jerusalem, their city, had been destroyed. Their temple had been destroyed. They, had, they could not worship God rightly anymore. This temple had been completely burned to the ground. There was nothing but ruins there. This was meant to, to demoralize them and cause them to give up hope of ever being a distinct nation again. A nation with God at its center, with the word of God at its center, to show the world what life with God looked like. Around 70 years had passed before God overthrew Babylon by stirring up the heart of Persian King Cyrus and Cyrus and the Persians defeated and conquered Babylon and ushered in the great Medo-Persian empire. The modern day Iranians are descended from the Persians. So Ezra begins with King Cyrus being stirred up by God to issue a decree that allows the people of God to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. The godly men step forward and together with their families set their faces toward Jerusalem. They step up and step into the great task that God has called them to accomplish in their generation. This required great courage and sacrifice. Chapter three shows us that they made it back to Jerusalem and they got to work right away building the altar of God first, teaching us that worship of God is priority and the atonement, reminding how we can be made right with God through the atonement is priority number one. This is what we would call being gospel-centered. Step one in rebuilding or building a worshiping community and renewing a city is to get the gospel right. Mankind's greatest need is not poverty, is not clothing, is not health care. Mankind's greatest need is to be reconciled to God. And there is only one way that happens. It is through the God-man, Jesus Christ. The sacrifice on the altar points forward to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that Lamb was Jesus. The altar was the cross where he gave his life to save ours. So that was step one. That's the center. But then we have to keep building out from there. There's more to the gospel than just the atonement. There's more to being the people of God than just having your sins forgiven. God has called them to build a church. I'm gonna use modern or, or, or New Testament language here. God has called them to build a church that renews and restores a city, renews and restores Jerusalem. That they are to live in such a way that the surrounding nations and unbelievers among them would know the only true God. So the people get to work on rebuilding the foundations of the temple. What we learned in the first few verses of chapter four is that almost immediately opposition arose against them. That opposition began in kind of a peculiar way. It began by trying to join them. 
This was an attempt to get the returned exiles to compromise with them. The locals were in effect saying, we don't really care if you come back here and rebuild the temple as long as you aren't going to be so dogmatic about it. We've got lots of religion here. As long as you're willing to take your place at the seat at the, at the, seat at the pagan table and not claim to be superior to anyone else, we will help you build. The people of God recognize this as compromise. This isn't being open-minded. This is an attempt to get us to break the first commandment, thou shalt not have any other gods beside me. This is very similar to the cultural orthodoxy of our day and age. It's okay to worship any so-called God you want in almost any way you want as long as you don't claim exclusivity or superiority over any other religion. This is antithetical to Christianity. Christianity does not seek a seat at the table of religious pluralism. We are the only religion with the God-man, Jesus Christ, who says, quote, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to the Father except through me. That truth claim has always and will always infuriate people who want to create some kind of religiously neutral society. The only way you can create a religiously neutral society if you believe that all religion is just mankind trying to figure their way to God. If you think of all religion is just kind of therapeutic, all religion is just kind of thoughts in your head. It doesn't actually lead to certain morals or values or actions or worship. That truth, that claim is built on a misunderstanding of worship itself and religion. It's interesting, when I first came back to the Quad Cities to plant this church, I was invited to a round table. A bunch of guys wanted to get together and talk about church planting. It's a difficult city to plant a church in. There had been no successful church plants for like five or six years in the Quad Cities when we planted our church. And they were wanting to, to kind of get, you know, we were all tiny. We all had just a handful of members and we wanted to kind of pool our resources, get together, maybe do something to impact the city, do something together that would be good for our city. And there was one guy there who was preaching the false prosperity gospel. He preached that God would make you healthy and wealthy and successful if you obeyed God and gave a lot of money to his ministry. He was trained by a TBN preacher and he often posted pics with him and other TBN prosperity preachers on their private jets. When they said, let's do something together, I said, well, okay, but I can't do something with that guy. He was there. That made an awkward conversation. I said, I can only unite together with other pastors and other churches that are preaching the gospel, the true gospel. The prosperity gospel is a damnable lie, so I cannot unite with that dude. Silence. I said, let's talk about it. 
We spent the next hour and a half going, I'm, I'm going scripture by scripture, showing him that he is preaching a false gospel that will send people to hell, that gives them all kind of false hope. And it really just destroys their faith in the long term because they give and they give and they give and they give and then God doesn't give them the Lexus or God doesn't heal their marriage or God doesn't heal their body. And then they are demoralized and discouraged and they walk away from faith thinking God didn't meet their need. Ultimately, he would not be convinced. So I said, no, not gonna do anything with you guys. Done. We can't. We're not on the same team. We're not preaching the same gospel. The God he says he serves is a different God than the God of scripture. So we can't be united here. Now, many think, would think that's harsh. If you take your sense of harshness from our society, you might be right. But what our society calls harshness and exclusivity, scripture calls courage and faithfulness. This is exactly what the people of God did in Ezra chapter four when they said, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. We alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel. So these people come and they show up with their shovels and their, and their tools and they got the tool belts on and say, we're ready to help you. And they say, no thanks. Uh-uh, you got nothing to do with us. This is a theological problem. We have a doctrinal issue. No thanks. Get on out of here. Now, many people would read that and go, man, that was harsh. But you're going to see in the later verses of this chapter that it wasn't harsh. They knew exactly what these people were trying to do. And most people maybe didn't recognize it, but the leaders of Israel knew exactly what they're going to do. And so when the people's first attempt didn't work, they try something else to discourage the people. So here we have the people of God kind of infuriating their neighbors. And listen, this is an act of love. What they're doing here, and Jesus telling us to love our neighbors, these things are all right on top of each other. They are loving their neighbors, even though they are infuriating their neighbors and they're being kind of offensive to their neighbors. This is still an act of love. Their unwillingness to compromise to the spirit of the age is actually going to lead to the construction of the temple where the right worship of God will take place, where their neighbors can then hear the gospel and turn from their sins. If they compromise here with their pagan neighbors, that would never happen. They would have just another syncretistic worship center, just another soft church preaching a soft man-centered gospel to meet the felt needs of people. Now, this is where, I hate to do this, but I have to. Um, we're gonna have to get scholarly for a moment. We're gonna have to nerd out a little bit here because in our text, things get a little complicated. I'm gonna try to help us manage this, comp this, this, this difficulty here without getting lost in the weeds. Modern scholars tell us here that there's a bit of a chronological problem presented to us here. And we're gonna look at it in our text. The chronological problem in Ezra and Nehemiah boils down to this. When you sit down and you just read the book straight through, it seems like everything is happening under the reign of one or two kings, maybe possibly three kings. The events of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Haggai, they all seem to be happening on top of one another at the same time under the reign of Cyrus, Chemesis, and Darius. 
Now there's only one problem. The text calls the Persian emperor under whom Ezra and Nehemiah lived by the name Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes I, his full name being Artaxerxes Longamanus, reigned many years after Darius. So if Artaxerxes in our text refers to Artaxerxes Longamanus, oh, good, these words, Lord, help me. This book, here it is, this book would actually span about 100 years of time. Now, when you read this book, it seems like it's happening right, everything happening right together. You, you don't read chapter six and chapter seven or, or even between verses six and seven here. You don't, it doesn't seem like there's a 50-year gap in time. Now, we can resolve this problem in one or two ways, one of two ways. The first is to try to like strain the information of the text in order to kind of fit with a longer time frame now, this approach is the common one among many scholars today. And this would give us a long chronology for Ezra. All right? The other way of resolving this problem is to believe and to hold that Artaxerxes in Ezra and Nehemiah is actually what we call a throne name. And it is simply another name for Darius. And that gives us a short chronology. Now, let me show you why we have this problem and the solution that I believe is the best one. The Persian Empire was eventually overthrown. History lesson, real quick. The Persian Empire was eventually overthrown in 425 BC by the Greeks. We know that the winner of battles gets to write the history books, right? They usually burn the temples and burn all the documents and burn all the stuff, and then they get to write the history books. In the Greek history books, here's how they list the Persian kings who reigned that ground before them. These are, um, put, let's put this up on the slide. These are the Greek names for each of these rulers, <clears throat> okay? You have Cyrus. He reigned from 539 to 530. You have oh, Cambyses, second, reigned from 530 to 522. You have Darius, who reigned from 522 to 487. You have Xerxes, who reigned from 487 to 466. And you have Artaxerxes Longamanus, who reigned from 465 to 425. Now, these are their Greek names recorded by Greek historians. Greek, right? So that's, that's, how, that's how we understand it when we study Greek civilizations. Now, most scholars simply accept this as fact. Okay, this isn't how the Bible teaches it, but this is how Greek historians have taught it. They accept it as fact and they move on from there. So when our texts speak of Darius, Ahasuerus, and Artaxerxes in chapter four, it assumes that they're all different kings. What's weird is then you get to the end of chapter four, verses 24, and the text reads, then the work on the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of King Darius. Well, can you put that back up there, please? Darius came before Artaxerxes of Longamanus. So most modern scholars say, okay, well then this letter has just kind of been added in here, out of place, kind of as just a history lesson. It's kind of added in here and the text jumps forward 50 years and then it comes back to the reign of Darius. I don't think that makes sense. The text goes from 
Darius to Artaxerxes back to Darius. If you assume that Artaxerxes is Artaxerxes Longamanus, not only does that extend your time frame, it also makes this section of scripture kind of an add-in and it just doesn't flow with the narrative. Now, it is a possibility. It could be that. And this is a book that's written over 100 years of time. But I don't think it's the simplest explanation. I don't think it's right. Here's what I think is going on. And I'm following the research and study of James Jordan. He's got a whole book on this um, that the elders read to prepare for this sermon series. When we read Persian history and when we read Israel history, we see that God gives people different names and he has them to write down different names to use as a teaching point. Think about Abram, who gets his name changed to Abraham. And Abraham means the father of many nations. So when he becomes Abraham, it's meant to teach us that now this is post-covenant with God and he's going to be the father of many nations. Think of Jacob, who gets his name changed to Israel. His name is meant to communicate a truth about himself, about his person, about his identity, right? On top of that, we also learn in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that different cultures have what we call throne names, right? Throne names. So if someone today were to refer to Caesar, you might rightly ask, well, which one? Which one? Right? The same is true of Pharaoh. You know, Pharaoh said, Pharaoh who? Which Pharaoh? Pharaoh is a throne name. Caesar is a throne name. That's what I believe is going on here in our text. Darius, Ahasuerus, and Artaxerxes were also throne names that are meant to teach us something. So Darius means doer of good. Xerxes and Ahasuerus means hero among kings. Artaxerxes means kingdom of justice. So when Darius is doing good things, they call him Darius. When Xerxes or Ahasuerus is, is being a hero, they show him hero of Monk, they call him hero among kings. When Artaxerxes, when Darius is being showing a kingdom of justice, they're calling him Artaxerxes. And Ezra here is using them in the Aramaic way. It even says it's written in Aramaic, not in the Greek way. He's using them interchangeably. The Greeks only called them one thing ever. Now, there's a lot of biblical support for this in Daniel and other places, but I just don't have time to go there. And that was a big enough aside, but I wanted to communicate that to you. So if you're reading, now listen, even in your ESV study Bible, even your ESV study Bible takes kind of the modern scholarship approach. And, and we, as the elders here, disagree with that. I just want you to know and trust the plain reading of the text over what mainstream scholars might teach. When you read the text, it does not read like there's a 50, 60 year gap in the middle of it. So here's where we at, where we are at in our text. The Jews come back, they begin working on the temple. The first attempt at opposing them and stopping the work was to try to join them. They said, let's get inside this thing and let's see if we can get them off mission to compromise with us. That didn't work, so the people change tactics. They threaten them and bribe counselors against them. This actually kind of does work a little bit. The text tells us they discouraged them and made them afraid to build. Now I want you to think, 
on social media platforms, are, are you discouraged and afraid to say certain things that the Bible says? Are you discouraged and afraid? Are you discouraged and afraid to say in public, in public settings some things that the Bible has to say? I think there have been some cultural tactics against us for a while, and many of us want to, own, we want to kind of, we wouldn't really say this, but at least in our vernacular, at least in our public speech, at least in what we proclaim, we want to kind of discard a lot of the Bible and only keep the pieces that aren't too controversial. Jesus died for your sins. See, this cultural pressure to compromise has been going on for a long, long time. So what I think happens here is that the people get scared and they stop working on the church. They stop working on the temple. And what they do is kind of natural. They turn inward. They start to work on their own homes. They start to rebuild the wall. We see here because the, the accusation against them is, is they're building the city and they're building the wall when before they were building the temple. So what happens is that their focus shifts from building God's house, which is controversial and difficult, and there's a lot of animus against it, and say, okay, okay, we're gonna pause, we're tired, we're gonna pause on this controversial stuff, we're gonna go home, and we're gonna build our homes. We're gonna build our city, we're gonna make a comfortable place for us first, and then let the, let the fire die down in the culture, and then maybe we'll go back to working on the church. Now, if you've read the book of Haggai, and we're gonna talk about it next week, this is why God sends a prophet, Haggai, to the people to tell them, wow, you're living in fancy houses while my temple lies in ruin, right? Because the people are just focused on their self, focused on their survival, focused on their comfort, and God has to raise up a prophet to say, get back to work on the temple. So, what, what's going on now they're building their homes. They're kind of working a little bit on the wall. Then their adversaries, see, their adversaries are not peaceful people. They're not raising the peaceful flag and say, oh, we don't care if you live here among us. No, they see them building the wall and they see them working on their homes and they just won't stop the opposition. You are not welcome here. And what do they do now? These people that tried to join them, they looked friendly. Now they write a letter to the king who I believe to be King Darius and they tell him this. Let's start in verse 11. This is the copy of the letter that they sent to Artaxerxes, the king. So to the doer of justice here. This is a letter, they're wanting justice to be done to the doer of justice. That's what Artaxerxes means. We think it's Darius. Your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. Whoa, whoa, okay. Nice greeting. Now we're coming in hot right away. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. 
Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat up the salt of the palace, so because we're beneficiaries of your kind rule, Darius, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. This is why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. All right, here. Here's the threat. Here's the threat to the king. First off, <laughs> all about the Benjamins, right? First threat, these people will not, right here, verse 13, if this city is rebuilt and the wall is finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Tribute is a payment made periodically by one state or ruler to another, especially as a sign of dependence. Custom is duties or taxes paid on imports and exports or, or toll. Basically, they are saying, King Darius, letting them rebuild this city is going to hurt you financially. It's going to hurt the tax base. Money talks, right? Now listen, there are many today, specifically on the political left, who are fighting right now to take away the tax-free status of churches. One of the things they want to do. They see our nonprofit status and want access to our resources. Too often, those in civil government are always looking for ways to get more of other people's, other people's money to spend. They also, so they want money. They, they use that to, to scare the king. The next thing they say is this. It is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. They say, this city is rebellious to pagan kings. They, what they're gonna happen, what's gonna happen here, what's gonna happen here, Darius, is you let them build their city. Eventually, they're gonna get strong enough. They're gonna come back and get you. They're gonna overthrow you. Eventually, they will rise up and, and crush you. We know the history of this city. They, this city doesn't want to get along. This city doesn't believe in paganism, doesn't believe in religious pluralism. They believe they have the one true God. This will always be a problem, always be a thorn in your side. They don't want to get along. They want to take over. Just check their history. Now, guess what? This is actually true. This is true. So here's what the adversaries are saying to the king. These people are dangerous to society. They are not going to pay their fair share in taxes and tribute. They won't serve, serve you as king for very long. They just want to create their own kingdom again. These people won't play nice. You gotta do something with them and stop them from building. 
Look at verse 22. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? It's strange to me how Israel's enemies actually understand her mission better than she does most of the time. Sometimes our adversaries understand our mission better than Christians do. These adversaries understood what Israel was actually trying to do. They are trying to rebuild their worshiping community rebuild their homes and their families, rebuild their city and their businesses, rebuild their walls in distinctively God-honoring ways. That means they were trying to build a very distinct culture, a God-honoring culture, and that culture would not pay homage to pagan kings. They might pay taxes, but they would only do it until God raised up a king to liberate them. The goal was for that culture, this God-honoring culture, a Christian culture to cover the face of the earth. That means they did not just want to coexist with their neighbors. Just give me enough ground for me and my family. That's all I need is just enough ground for me and my family. Don't bother us and just let us worship God. No, no. They wanted a missional community. They wanted to build a worshiping community that then renewed all of creation for the glory of God. That means they were a threat to their neighbors. They wanted to convert them. They were a threat to that pagan way of life. They were a threat to any worldview that said, can't we all just get along and worship different gods? This is why 450 years later, when King Herod hears that there's the king of the Jews, this Messiah has been born, he, what does he do? King Herod issues a murderous edict that every child under the age of two in Bethlehem be slaughtered. Why? because Herod knew the implications of a king. Herod knew these people want to change culture. These people want to take over. These people believe that their God is sitting in the heavens and their God is the only God. And that's a threat to my kingdom. That's a threat to my rulership. That's a threat to my empire. Many Christians today, no, we're no threat at all. We're no threat. Just leave us alone. Just leave us alone and let us pray our prayers and let us raise our kids. Many times our adversaries know what we're here for better than we do. Herod committed infanticide, not because he was insane, but because he realized who King Jesus really was. And that was a threat to his earthly empire. Because Herod rightly recognized that Jesus was a threat to his kingdom. Listen, if Jesus is really on the throne and he's ruling heaven and earth, and he wants us 
to make disciples, to build families, to build businesses, to plant churches, to renew our city, that is going to put us and bring us into a lot of conflict. Literally, the conflict of the universe. Like forces of light versus forces of darkness. Forces of God versus forces of Satan. He's drafting us into that kind of battle. And yes, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but those spiritual principalities and those spiritual things, guess what they do? They inhabit flesh and blood. They inhabit institutions. They inhabit these systems of injustice and other different things. Now, this is going to bring us into a lot of conflict even in our own city, specifically with unbelievers. Now, I know we don't like to hear that. For the last decade or so, Christians have been saying things like, can't we just stop using martial language? Can't we just stop using this wartime mentality? There's no culture war going on. And now, 10, 20 years later, after we have surrendered a lot of ground and we've seen all kinds of hills taken by the other side and threats to our own religious freedom have been taken or been advancing more and more and more. Now Christians are saying things like, well, it's just too late. It's just too late. We've just lost and there's just no going back. Lost what? I thought there was no war. There's no war and now it's too late. We just need to hunker down and become new monastics, new monks, basically. We just need to hunker down and suffer well and wait till Jesus returns. Listen, is Jesus on the throne or what? Is he king of kings or what? Go reread the book of Joshua. That's what I'm reading right now in my Bible reading. When God wants us to take ground, he tells us to be courageous and to be faithful to him. It doesn't matter how dark the days are. It doesn't matter how powerful the forces are in front of us. Jesus is Lord and ultimate victory will be his. He guarantees it. So we want to do our work in this city as if we really believe Jesus is ordering and orchestrating our efforts. And guess what? Success is possible. Guys, you, we don't know if Jesus is right around the corner. But if we believe things are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and then Jesus comes back, that theology affects the way we live our life. And we just kind of sit on our hands and we just kind of hunker down and we read our Bible personally and devotionally and we want to go to heaven when we die. And we literally are wanting society to get worse and worse and worse because that means somehow Jesus is going to come back and fix everything. The Christians who have made the most impact in the world did not have that type of outlook, did not have that type of eschatology, that kind of understanding of the end times. They believed God put us here to make an impact. And if God is with us, who can be against us? Maybe we can change a whole city. Maybe we can renew a nation. I'm reminded in the book of Acts when the apostles were being 
persecuted by the, Jew, by the Pharisees specifically. And this one Pharisee, Gamaliel, Gamaliel, in the book of Acts, he says this. He goes, guys, stop fighting with the apostles. Stop fighting with them. Because listen, he says this, quote, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. See, that's what we need to believe. If God is behind us, if God is with us, it doesn't matter how much opposition we face. It doesn't matter if things get really dark for a season. We do not lose hope because we have a long-term vision that we believe God will bring about renewal. God will bring about revival. And in the end, he's going to restore all things anyways. So the people of God here in our text, they experience a setback. If it's a short time frame, could be a year or so. If it's a long time frame, could be 30, 40 years of a setback. The enemy, look at verse 23. Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The enemy win a battle here and the work ceases. By power and force, made them cease. Now it's interesting because they, these adversaries were smart. They used every legal means necessary to get them to stop working on the building. I was talking to a pastor recently in town and they had, had, they had purchased a plot of land and they had this, this plot of land for like something like nine or 10 years. They'd been raising money and they raised about a half a million dollars and they were getting ready. They'd been doing the building campaign and they were getting ready to, to build a, a new church building. And when they went to pull the permits, they realized that the city had changed the, um, they, had, they had rezoned the property. Now the property could not have a church on it and it was rezoned something, I don't know, I can't remember what it is, something like agriculture or, or woodlands or, or something like that. And the city said, whoa, or the, the, the church said, whoa, we were nev never notified of this. What, what do you mean? We, we can't, we've had this property for 10 years. What do you mean we can't build the church that we were going to build on this? They said, sorry, we have a, a meeting coming up in May that you can appeal and, and, and you can only do this once a year. And so they went to, they, they met with every single council member that was on this team and they told them their, their vision and their plan and this is gonna be an outreach for the community and this is gonna bring blessing to the community and this is gonna be good for the community and on and on and on and they go. And then they get into the meeting and one councilwoman who is antagonistic to Christianity, antagonistic to the gospel, turns the opinion of one other one other person, and they squash the they, they squash the the, op, the opportunity to to change the ordinance or change change the zoning, and they said you can basically appeal next year. So this church, which was busting at the seams of where they're at, and then they had their, they had this own land. They were ready. They had the money raised. They were ready to stop. All of a sudden, one city councilwoman put us who did not want a church there, put a stop in their plans. And they were discouraged. 
They were deeply discouraged. They were wondering, is God on the throne? What in the world? We had this property. You know, this seems like a huge setback. And about a month or two or later, we were looking for a building. I went through a building that was kind of on the down low that nobody knew was for sale. And we went through and it was a little bit too small for us and it wouldn't work for us, but it was a beautiful building and a great building. And I called that pastor and he was sitting in Porterbrook, by the way, he takes our Porterbrook. I called that pastor and I said, hey, there's a, there's a building here that we're passing on that I think you need to check out. And he said, all right. That afternoon they went, their elders met there. It was an answer it was an answered prayer by God. They were weeping and within a month they had bought that building. Now listen, I say that to say this. There are adversaries in our city right now. There are people antagonistic to the gospel and to the Christian worldview who are working against us right now. We need to be aware of that, but God is sovereign and you cannot stop his plan from happening, right? Now we're gonna experience setback. We're gonna experience discouragement, but... God's kingdom is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now, it's interesting here that God, one of my things, in closing, God isn't just building a building here. He's building a people, a certain type of people. There's only one way to learn how to be courageous. And that is to step into something that's fearful. It's the only way you can learn. To, you can't learn courage by watching TV, playing video games. The only way to learn courage is by just stepping into something that is genuinely fearful. He's te the only way to learn how to be hardworking is to work hard. The only way to learn how to be faithful is to go through, through things that test your faith. It's the only way. And he's teaching his people here how to be courageous, how to be hardworking, how to be disciplined and tough, how to have thick skin when everybody's saying bad things about you, how to remain faithful to God in the midst of setbacks and not give in to the cultural pressure around him. Now listen, that difficulty, that pressure is meant to make them more like Jesus. I'm going to go to Romans, or I'm, going to, I'm sorry, Hebrews, going to Hebrews chapter 12. It says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So this is what this starts off. We have a lot of heroes of the faith. We have a lot of good examples in scripture that shows us what it means to be courageous and faithful, okay? We're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. Ezra and Nehemiah are one of them. Listen, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Can I tell you this? We have a hard job ahead of us, being Christian men, being Christian women, being Christian husbands, Christian wives, raising Christian children, building Christian businesses, building a church, renewing a city. We have a race in front of us. We don't know how much we can accomplish. We got a generation's worth of work ahead of us. It's going to be exhausting. And one of the things that will quickly exhaust us is if we're carrying sin too closely, if we're carrying burdens that we're not meant to carry, and we're meant to cast those off, 
on to Jesus. Looking, verse two, looking to Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith. So we are not working for salvation. Jesus has saved us by his perfect work. Now we are working from our salvation. We are building on the foundation that Jesus gave us. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus went through conflict like we will never know. Despising the shame. He wasn't worried about the shame. Public, being crucified public in public, naked on a cross. The whole world would look at him and say, what a fool. Look at now. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Jesus endured hostility. We are going to endure hostility. so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He's showing us here the temptation for us is to get tired and faint-hearted and to give up and lose courage. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Have you forgotten this exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when he when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. See, he's building us into disciplined, righteous people. And that takes discipline. That takes difficulty. That takes pain. That takes pressure. That takes frustration and animosity to build that type of people. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline and what all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If everything goes well for you, it means he doesn't care about you. You're just illegitimate sons and daughters. If you're going through difficulty, it's because he's making something, making you into something that you could never be without that conflict. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. Look, that we may share his holiness. Discipline is meant to lead to holiness, separateness, being different and distinct from the people around us, from unbelievers. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Ain't that the truth? But later... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. When you're running five miles every single day, it hurts. But guess what? That painful process, when you need, for whatever reason, if you were to need to run five miles, that painful process produces peaceful fruit that I can actually do this. Right? I can actually do this because I've trained in such a way that now I can accomplish this thing. Opposition, hostility, sin, all of these things work against our efforts at renewal. But the Lord, listen, turns this resistance into resistance training. He's strengthening us. 
He's adding weight to the bar. Every single day, he's adding weight to the bar. It feels like it's getting more and more difficult. Yes, but guess what else is happening? You're getting more and more stronger. Now, we are here on this earth to work for God's kingdom. We know that that could go well for us or it might go bad for us. We don't really have, we don't know how it's gonna go for us, okay? We're just called to be faithful and to be courageous and to work hard for his kingdom. Now, many would say, well, what hope do I have if I have no idea what I'm going to do is actually gonna produce any fruit? Let's go to verse 28 in chapter 12. Therefore, let pause, last thing I'm gonna say. The rest of chapter 12 is this. God is shaking the kingdoms of men. He's shaking them and everything that is not of his tree, everything that is not of his fruit, everything that is not of him is gonna fall to the ground. He's shaking the kingdoms of men. Okay, think of it. Every king that rises against, he's shaking them and eventually they will die and they will be destroyed. Everything that's not of him will fall away. Now look what he says. Therefore, let us be grateful. In the midst of the battle, be grateful? Yes. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire that is consuming everything that's not of him. Everything pagan, everything unbelief, all of that, our God is gonna consume it all and the only thing last is the work of God that has taken place in, on this earth by his spirit, the work of renewal, the work of kill, kingdom building. Everything else is being shaken. The only thing that's gonna stay on the tree is the work of renewal and the power of the gospel, the things that have been done for his kingdom. We can have hope in the midst of it. What does he say to do? Be grateful and worship him for you've received a kingdom cannot be shaken. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for the work that you've done, the work that you are doing even, that you're building a kingdom even now, that your kingdom is coming as it is in heaven to this earth, Lord. Your kingdom is coming. I pray that it would break in in the Quad Cities, break in at Sacred City Church, that we would see fruit of your kingdom, that you would strengthen us for this difficult task that you have called us to. Make us into the people that have the courage and have the faithfulness to stand in the midst of opposition and to do it joyfully, to do it gratefully, to do it worshipfully. Looking to Jesus who shows us exactly what that looks like. Jesus, I thank you that we're not saved by our courage. We're not saved by our effort. We're not saved by our faithfulness. We're saved by yours. But in the midst of that battle, you bring us in every single week and you remind us that you have sustenance for us. You have encouragement for us. You have strength for us. And that's what we come today. We come to your table for that. We ask that you would feed us once again. We open up our hands and we want to receive the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. We want to eat this meal of grace and be strengthened for the days ahead. I pray even now, Father, that you are convicting of sin. You are 
convincing people of the righteousness of God in Christ who are helping them believe the gospel even now and they're putting their faith in you. I pray all of this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen.